This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, Lee Chenren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of some investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a really interesting show. Uh, this was one of the weeks of the Bitcoin having. We have two guests who are going to be talking about their business and some in, in, important, exciting announcements uh, that they're going to bring to us. Uh, but before that, Professor, uh, we're recording first thing in the morning. You had a uh, another obligation with Wharton today, but just giving your sense of a little bit more volatility in the markets this week, yeah. not straight line higher. How are you thinking yeah. about what's going well, on? Yeah, Druckenmiller and Tepper, uh, you know, said, oh, my God, these things are way overvalued. And and then uh, when Chairman Powell came on, which was pessimistic, I think those three things drove the market down 5%. But, I, I mean, it was really – and Thursday's turnaround was really strong. Uh, which shows that the buying is is there uh, now. To now, this morning we got this uh, Huawei problem that sent the market down to fifty. Um, yeah, you know, we already were not going to sell chips to Huawei. Now, uh, someone from China said, "No, we're not going to buy Boeing planes." And then the, all those fears of the trade war are, 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 are simmering in the background. We don't need that now. Um, and we we talked about the fact that politically there's no question that Trump is going to go on to China, uh, you know, for part of the plane. But we don't need another trade war right now uh, with with the economy so fragile. We we got the retail sales, uh, you know, they they were so to speak worse than expected. I all as I keep on saying, everything is the rear view mirror in terms of uh, you know uh, you know what we're seeing. Um, we are seeing better activity. I mean, the oil market is is definitely come up. Uh, driving is is increasing. Some transactions on Mastercard, Visa, uh, are 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 up. I mean, we do see signs because of the selective reopening around the United States of some increase in activity. Of course, nowhere near what we are. We're still looking at a lot of the data. Um, Europe is is definitely also selectively opening up, up, up and down. We'll, we'll see what what happens there. Um, uh, uh, and and uh, some of their infection rates are down dramatically. Um, um, uh, Sweden has not done quite as well, uh, so there's some talk about that being looked at as as a, as as a model uh, on the money front. 
uh, as uh, yesterday, you know, every every Thursday afternoon, new monetary data, another huge jump in the M1 money supply, which is something as as you know for weeks I've been looking at again unprecedented liquidity uh, creation, uh, which uh, I, I strongly believe that once uh, confidence returns, uh, that it's going to be flowing into the market next year in a very, very strong way. Um, a number of people are beginning to talk about that. It is hard to talk about that when the shutdown and the price levels of so many things are, are, are moving down. But uh, uh, it's uh, the data keeps on confirming the rise in, in liquidity, and it's something certainly to position investors. It's also the reason why I believe, you know, the, the S&P is where it is and not lower. I, I do not believe it is disconnected from from fundamentals. Um, uh, on, on, on the virus front, uh, there there is some some anecdotal good news on some of the uh, plasma uh, treatments with antibodies. Uh, we don't have those tests in. We haven't don't have firm tests that have come in over the last seven days. Uh, but um, uh, there's some anecdotal evidence of some of, of some good developments that are on that front. Uh, as, you know, let me repeat that uh, although it might take quite a while for a vaccine to be developed uh, and approved on a worldwide basis that strong therapeutics and vaccines um, may uh, be in place by the fall uh, where we uh, are concerned about um, uh, a uh, even if we get a decline in virus uh, uh, infections now and deaths that it might resurge at that time. Uh, I also like to mention on a a personal note that my wife and I got tested yesterday. Um, we have no symptoms, but uh, we saw uh, on the news that uh, Rite Aid was uh, doing with the CDC free testing uh, at various sites around the country. I think in eight or nine states, they're going to expand it. CVS, I think, has now just joined them. Um, it was very easy. Uh, you, you'd register online, answer questions. You drive up there. It's extremely professionally done. You never get out of your car. Uh, you give a nasal swab sample, and then you leave it there and there, and then they Google you later uh, with that. And this is part of a, a national testing to, uh, uh, to identify which groups. Uh, you do not need pre uh, any reason you uh, need uh, Except for age, we have no pre-existing conditions and we have no symptoms. And yet we were instantly approved for, for this test. So testing is ramping up the ability to get tests. Um, we did have to wait a little while because of a, some snags in, in some of them. But if they get more of these ramped up, uh, the, the process could take as long as no longer than, than 10 minutes and you stay in your car. Um, uh, which I think uh, is something that, that really could ramp up uh, testing. Um, so uh, as usual, I'm interested in Li Qian's uh, take on where the virus might go. And we could, uh, as, as we both think that's the key to economic recovery, um, uh, Li Qian, very interested in your views. Thank you, Professor. Uh, thank you. I'm, um, I'm glad you got the test. I think 
um, at least from all the experience from other countries, it's really pointing toward that testing uh, is is you know is one of the really key things that can keep you know, identify with the cluster, the newer cluster. There are a few clusters in China as well, and also in in South Korea uh, in the uh, nightclub. I think they were able to very quick test and trace and it looks like it's under control so i I think the the other thing i've been looking i think people are all looking is you know will the u.s trajectory more towards sweden sweden kind of uh, you know flat or versus the germany way i still believe u.s is uh, getting is closer to the german case because um you know, most most of people are still taking very precautions, and it will go down. It, it is going down. I think last month there were a lot of chatter on social media saying U.S. cases are not going down, but it's really the numbers are needs to be interpreted uh, because the testing rate has increased, so the cases looks like plateauing, but the actual cases is going down. So yeah. I think uh, I'm I'm still sticking with my you know last two months I I'm saying it will go down, and the reopening will not um you know uh, have a significantly ramp it up as long as testing is becoming you know much more available. One thing I I didn't um I feel like in the news there's not much talk is that when the second wave comes, um f- flu shots likely may help you know in. In relief some of the hospital capacity and usually 50% of Americans uh, have the flu shots that's a capacity and I hope you know the newspaper journalists could, could ask you know when when September comes will we have enough uh, flu shots because even the flu shots does not protect people from the virus you could reduce the number of people going to the hospital for flu so you you'll have hospital capacity just in case so I right. think something like that will be, you know, hopefully the news media can do a, a, a good job to letting, letting you know, ordinary people like us not as worried, you know, in case that. Yeah. And I want you to point out that even though the flu shots may only be 50 to 70 percent effective, depending on the season, uh, uh, that can still reduce a lot of flu if 50 percent of Americans don't even get them, I, I would imagine for the upcoming, it's going to go up to 80 and 90. Uh, I would hope so. Uh, and that you're absolutely right, will reduce them. I, I really hope that by the fall, um, we, we will have effective therapeutics that will be taken early on, such as Tamiflu and others, that will in and of itself reduce the number of people uh, that have to go to the um, hospital. Actually, I have a yes. Yeah, uh, and which would also uh, be a, a a huge step forward. Yeah, and I and actually I do have a monetary question. There's so much talk about negative interest rate. Um, yeah. you know, both yeah. UK. I'm and glad US. you brought it up. I, I should talk about that. I, uh, Lee Kian. All right. So, so let me let me say because and 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 thank you again for bringing that up and and that was a big point with Powell. Um, I am uh, come down uh, against negative interest rates. Um, it would gain in the in the sense that uh, all those loans that would be tied to the LIBOR or now the new SOFR uh, would go down, and that would be a help. But it really hurts. 
financial intermediaries. It's really hard to pay negative rates on deposits. They really get squeezed. And some of the studies that I have seen say that uh, the, the harm done to financial institutions and therefore their lending function basically will offset the gain that you get by the links of uh, interest rates going slightly lower um, uh, for the loan rate. So uh, net, I feel that Powell and, and the Fed is right. I would not go down to negative rates. I, I wouldn't absolutely rule it out if some other evidence comes in or it's felt to be necessary. But uh, I, I think at the present time, that's correct. I do think, um, you know, that, that there's a, there's this fourth uh, stimulus package. Um, uh, a state and localities uh, have seen tax revenues plummet, and 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 they're they're in dire shape. And although some COVID-related expenses were reimbursed, and the first ones, I think more uh, ease on 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 that because of the tremendous gaps in in these state budgets that is causing reductions in in services. Um, I would much more more rather see fiscal support continue and maybe expanded than I would for the Fed at this point uh, to go to the the negative uh, rate uh, regime. And well, this has been a great introductory to the show. I think that also teases out our discussion next week. We have the Richmond Fed President Barkin planned to come on for the show, Professor. Uh, We're looking forward to having him next Friday discuss his views on monetary policy. I'm sure both the money supply issue, the inflation thoughts, negative rates, all this will be a topic for 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 Mr. Barkin. So looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going it's going to be very good next week. Yes, thank you very much. Well, we're looking forward to getting your test results back, Professor Lee Chen. Thanks for some sh- for comments to start the show. We'll we'll talk to you again next week. Let me just reintroduce you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin and crypto investing. I'm going to be joined now for the remainder of the show by Florian Genez, who's an associate director of quantitative research for Wisdom Tree Europe Limited, one of my colleagues who is the most focused on Bitcoin uh, from a few years ago. I remember uh, Florian and a lot of his team in Europe were some of the early traders on Bitcoin. And uh, uh, certainly he, he'll bring some perspective. Earlier on, on Monday, this was a big week for crypto uh, on the halving you had on Monday. We'll talk about what was this halving? What did it mean? But Florian was presenting on including Bitcoin in a multi-asset portfolio on Monday during the halving. I'm sure that was sort of a special moment for him there. Uh, Chris King, founder and CEO of Eagle Brook Advisors and Tyrone Ross, the head of advisory at Eagle Brook. Uh, Eagle Brook uh, describes itself on their website, bridge between financial advisors, digital assets. Uh, Chris, Tyrone, Florian, thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thanks for having us. Um, Maybe. I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to have a great panel here talking about what's going on. Tyrone, you were also hosting Consensus this week, one of the big uh, annual conferences focused on crypto. Maybe we could start a little bit. um, A little bit each of you can talk about how you got first introduced and started thinking about Bitcoin and crypto, and then we can talk about how use cases will get get into Eagle Brook. But maybe um, starting with you, Tyrone, how, how when did you first get into crypto and uh, and, and think about it more as, as you have been? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I had the distinct privilege of being at a White House um, when I learned about Bitcoin. Uh, right around 2015, and I, I had a friend of mine who was a, a Ruby developer and. He's ranting and raving about this new internet money and 
I just laughed them off. I kept laughing them off. I'm like, man, this is ridiculous, right? And um, what got me was he, he finally just kept pressing me, and he asked me to download this app um, called Bread Wallet, and he sent me some. And at that moment, I was just like, all right, I, I need to start to pay attention to this. And 2016, like, I really dug in, and, you know, he put me in a Facebook group chat with a whole bunch of really smart people, um, you know, to photographers and computer scientists and engineers in there and I'm looking at the Facebook chat and I have zero to add but I'm looking I'm like man they're giving each other some terrible investment advice and uh the light bulb kind of went off there and I'm like you know what I um I'm going to learn more about this and then looking at it from you know an advisory perspective as a, as a financial advisor and just to tie it up um long story less long had a chance meeting with Howard Lindzen um, you know, on Twitter, he mentioned he was coming to New York City, and it was Labor Day weekend, 2016, I believe. And we had a meeting, and I'm like, listen, I'm really passionate about this crypto stuff and, you know, really passionate about startups. And he was like, well, listen, do yourself a favor. When you leave here, go all in on crypto and all in on startups and watch what happens. And, you know, the rest is history. And, and now, I'm on the, uh, now I'm on the podcast with you. So it's pretty cool. And then, and and then, Chris, how you you have some background doing some research on the space as well before starting Eaglebrook? Maybe give you a little bit of your background and and what got you to to start Eaglebrook? Of course. So I originally got into Bitcoin in 2014 while I was studying finance in undergrad. I decided to participate in a uh, case study on how to tax virtual currencies, and the only relevant virtual currency in 2014 was Bitcoin. Uh, and it kind of merged my interest of econ, finance, and technology. So I went down the rabbit hole from there. And from 2014 to 2018, I was researching, investing, networking within the Bitcoin and crypto space uh, and decided to join a crypto venture fund in early 2018, where we invested in exchanges, custodians, uh, Bitcoin lending companies, data companies, asset management companies. We were investing in all these companies building infrastructure in the crypto space. And what I saw was all these companies were building for either the retail or institutional market, but a lot of these companies were overlooking the wealth management market. And from conversations that I had with advisors, they were telling me, my clients want to allocate to Bitcoin. How can I do it? And there really wasn't a great answer for that. So about a year ago, I decided to leave that venture fund and start Eaglebrook Advisors. Uh, and at Eaglebrook, what we do is we help independent RIAs and advisors allocate the Bitcoin in a simple, secure, and compliant way. Uh, the way we do that is by offering Bitcoin uh, SMAs, Bitcoin Separately Managed Accounts, which we believe is the best in vehicle, investment vehicle for advisors to allocate their client's capital to Bitcoin. You know, it's interesting. They the the sort of regulators in the U.S. have not uh, been approving of a sort of sort of exchange traded product uh, for Bitcoin. They've had some issues, but I um, mean, you know, people can open a, a cash wallet and trade Bitcoin on their phones, uh, traditional Coinbase or Cash apps or whatever apps of the world. Um, but sort of separate managed accounts. I mean, what what do you think the the benefit of that structure is versus the others? What do you think the regulatory, you know, what are they missing? Or maybe sort of talk about why an SMA as sort of the, the access vehicle? Of course. So from a high level, we want to allow any high net worth individual that works with an advisors to allocate the Bitcoin in a you know secure and regulated way. Uh, but when you get into the weeds of the actual structure over, you know, SMAs and ETFs, 
uh, you actually own the Bitcoin directly in your name at a qualified custodian, and you're the sole legal owner of Bitcoin. And I think that goes into the debate. It's like, would you rather own a gold ETF or gold, uh, you know, physical gold if it were the same price? Obviously, you would rather own the physical gold in your name if it were the same price. And that's what we're doing. Eagle Brook is allowing our clients to own it directly. And I think also one of the advantages that we have is that uh, we have daily liquidity. And when you're investing in such a volatile market like Bitcoin, you want to be able to get in and out of the market in a 24-hour time period to realize gains and get out of the market when you'd like to rebalance on a monthly or uh, weekly basis. So that's kind of what we're doing with the SMA structure. And those are our thoughts on why we think it's the best investment vehicle for high net worth individuals, advisors, and hopefully institutions as they start to move into this space. Yeah, and I should I should mention that I did become uh, you know Eagle Brook is sort of a brand new venture, um, and I and Chris I believe this is some of the first time you guys are talking publicly about your offering going out to advisors, so sort of breaking news about how your platform is is operating. But uh, as sort of we got to know each other, and and uh, sort of I knew Tyrone knew he was working on the space. He sort of introduced us all together, and I became one of your early test clients and have bought some coins with. Eagle Brook and uh, sort of just a disclosure that we, sort of we got uh, we got to know each other and, and, and became a client. Um, so let me bring in Florian to the discussion quickly. So Florian, uh, when did you start looking at Bitcoin and what's what's sort of been your experience thinking about it uh, over in, in Europe? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess that my uh, experience with Bitcoin was similar to a lot of uh, people. I, I started hearing about it in, uh, I think, late 2013. And I think I thought that that's uh, that's interesting. So I, I I kept an eye on it, but uh, it's actually only I think in the like the end of the first half of 2017 that I actually uh, started investing in it uh, because as it happened, we we had a kind of a little club uh, of uh, of other investors in the cryptocurrencies uh, amongst my colleagues. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, after that, we started looking more and more into it. And so now I'm uh, uh, covering the asset class and uh, try to look a little bit uh, more in details as to uh, what is the impact of Bitcoin in portfolios, how you might uh, want to invest in that, how you can allocate to Bitcoin. Uh, so that, that's pretty much what I do now. And yeah, I think this is one of the big questions. I mean, there's the outlook of what do we think is going to happen to the Bitcoin price? Why Bitcoin as an asset class that we can all start exploring? But maybe we could talk about what people's experiences. So, Florian, when you think about talking to people about how to include Bitcoin in a portfolio, what are some of the reasons you're you're seeing people talk about? What are you know? How do you think about the role of Bitcoin in a portfolio, and and what role it plays? What are they trying to get exposure to, and why? Um, I, I think there's really three three main reasons why people uh, consider this for addition in the portfolio in general. So the first one is really when they have a strong belief on the disruption that this technology can bring in the world, and so they, they believe in the exponential growth that this can have and see it as a almost as a like VC type of investment or almost as a corruption. Um, the second, the second way people look at it is often, you know, as Bitcoin has um, those features of being completely out of control of governments and banks, etc. They see it as a hedge uh, against uh, the, the system, basically. Um, and the, the last, the last point that uh, people uh, very much like in general about Bitcoin, and I think it's probably the most interesting one, is the fact that, you know, it has a very low correlation with all the asset classes that are available out there, pretty much. 
And so it makes a great case for adding it to a portfolio for diversification. And so uh, this is really where, where we try to focus uh, our research when it comes to uh, allocation into Bitcoin, try to do simulations, see how it, uh, it improves the, the risk return profile of the portfolio, and what, what are the periods of outperformance, underperformance versus uh, a base portfolio without Bitcoin in it. Uh, and, and, we, and we see that actually it, it really helps the, the risk return profile of a portfolio. Um, it's, it, it's even in that kind of independent as to the moment when you start investing in it. Actually, I was playing with my simulations this afternoon. I, I, I just tried to see how the performance of the portfolio looks like if you had invested at the very peak of the Bitcoin market at the end of 2017. And as it happens uh, today, you would still be better off in my simulation uh, with with Bitcoin in your portfolio than without Bitcoin in your portfolio, so I, I think I think there is a lot of interesting points to be raised uh, when it comes to to adding that asset to a portfolio. We'll have to talk about what kind of rebalancing you did there, but I want to bring Tyrone back in. So Tyrone, yeah, when you and I talked about what is the typical advisor experience and what do people think about when they try to include, you sort of talk about this 1% rule that people put in 1% and sort of call it a day. Like when you think about how much would be appropriate and why, maybe sort of talk a little bit about what you think is more appropriate type allocations to this asset class. It's a a really interesting conversation because for me, I never really understood where the 1% came from. You know, I certainly after, before meeting with you, um, it was down to TD Ameritrade, and there was, you know, there was the whole conversation of presentations around 1% allocation, 1% allocation. Not really sure where that comes from. Now there's been a lot of modeling with 1%, 2.5%, 5%. I think Bitwise put out a piece um, and a few other folks showing that, again, and as was just mentioned, if you bought at the, you know, at the high in 17, you rebalanced all the way through, you're up right now. So my whole point with it is this. What good is telling people that they need to allocate 1% and there's no way to do it? And for financial advisors, there's no way to do that. So, great, allocate, but how? And that's why we're so excited about what we're doing with Eagle Book because there's really no way for financial advisors to do that. I have the privilege of, you know, hosting a podcast called the Human Advisor Podcast, and we interview financial advisors, and I had a conversation with Morgan Richard, who is, Pierre Richard's wife, if you know anything about the space, Pierre Richard is, is highly well respected as a, as a Bitcoiner and, and crypto voice. And she said, had a conversation with a client about gold. The client, I, I brought up Bitcoin and the, the client actually had some type of interest in it. And, you know, we, I, I tried to model it out for them. There was no way for me to model that into a portfolio with the client. And I said, well, where'd you actually send the client to do it? She had to send the client the cash app. There was no way for her to actually integrate that into her planning and then actually demonstrate the actual trade for the, on behalf of the client. So back to the original point, I think if you're a financial advisor right now, you have to look at, and that's another piece I want to talk about, my clients are very young. They're very risk of, like, they're, they're very, you know, much risk takers. They're crypto native. They're, they love technology. They would never like one percent to them. They would they would laugh at that. They they have very large positions in crypto. And the thing with financial advisors is we get a we get a look at someone's whole financial picture. So we can never just say do one percent, or we can never just say ten percent. A lot of it is in relation to what your whole financial life looks like. 
So I think that one percent is more of a you know to get off zero for endowments and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, okay, maybe. But in this space, it's not a one percent conversation. Um, it's more about how do we actually do it? And I think now we have an ability to do that. I will end that by saying, if you do, though, look at some of the work that has been put out there, I do think for it to be some, you know, uh, uh, again, looking at across the book of business, something more demonstrative for clients like my, that, that I have and financial advisors working with the younger demographic, maybe you're more of that two and a half to five percent conversation as opposed to one percent. And so when you think about the sort of separate account structure and sort of and, and, and going into their workflows, what do you think that this structure um, will allow versus, you know, there are people going to Coinbase and, and doing things like that on their own? Well, I was going to say one of the big things that we're focusing on and from conversations that we've had with independent RIAs, we want to make it as simple as possible for them to do that. So we want to integrate with their full workflow from, you know, a fully digital onboarding process. Uh, all the way to performance reporting that can integrate directly with their you know, portfolio management systems and their software so they can see their Bitcoin exposure, their Bitcoin allocation right next to their public equities exposure, right next to their fixed income exposure, right next to their other alternative investments, right? So it's fully integrated with um, advisors' workflow. And then we also have a rebalancing tool where advisors can rebalance, say they're at 1% Bitcoin, the investment committee decides to go to 2%, they can do that with a push of a button in our advisor portal um, in 200 accounts pro rata. Uh, and we can do that through our automated order execution uh, model. So I think that's, you know, the powers that we can uh, allow any advisor to allocate to Bitcoin in all kinds of accounts and do it as simple as possible by, by integrating with their traditional workflows. We're talking with two executives from a firm, uh, Eagle Brook Advisors, who are just coming out announcing their uh, Bitcoin SMA serving financial advisors, uh, as Tyrone says, uh, by advisors, for advisors, uh, who's the head of the advisory platform at Eagle Brook. Um, and so, you know, we were talking a little bit about their new offering, the first part of the show, and a little bit why Bitcoin, how to think about Bitcoin in a model. I want to sort of continue the conversation on really what is the bull case on Bitcoin and really how to think about it. Um, you know, because a lot of people see it. And, and when I first started personally getting interested in, you know, you saw the major run up and you sort of like, why is it going up this fast? Why is it doing what it is? is it, can it go to zero? You know, a lot of people say this stuff is worthless. Um, and, and, and sort of there's just more and more, I found motivation for the optionality in it and sort of the different exposures it could be having. Um, and one of the, the sort of on that point is there's this model that says that uh, the, the price is tied to how much issuance is there and it's sort of having this week. Um, so maybe I'll start with Chris talking about the modeling on Bitcoin itself. Uh, any commentary on the, the developments that happened this week, the having, and what you think that means for the, the long-term prices and, the, and even just the short-term prices, what's going on there? Of course. So our view is that the having event, which happens around every four years, is the primary driver to the Bitcoin market cycles and actually you know, the Bitcoin bull market. So before looking forward, let's look back a little bit at the first and second Bitcoin bull markets. The first one uh, started and was catalyzed by the first having event in November of 2012, where Bitcoin's price was around $12. It actually went up 100 times 12 months later to over $1,200 uh, in November of 2013. The second having event happened in July of 2016, when Bitcoin was around $600. 
And 18 months later, in December of 2017, Bitcoin uh, peaked at almost $20,000, which is a 30 times increase. Now, the third halving event just occurred on Monday, May 11th, and the price was around 8500 If we look at from the first market cycle to the second market cycle, Bitcoin went from 100 times the first market cycle to 30 times the second market cycle. If we use the same discount rate of 70% from the second market cycle to the potential third Bitcoin bull market, we would get a nine times increase from the price at the halving. So we think that uh, the price at the all-time high of this next potential bull market could be around $75,000 price, and that would imply about a $1.5 trillion market capitalization. We also think that it's going to take longer to reach an all-time high than the previous two bull markets. So the first Bitcoin bull market took 12 months to reach an all-time high. Second took 18. We think now it's probably going to take 24-plus months to reach an all-time high. So kind of getting in any time in the next six months, I like to say anyone getting in under 10 Ks is going to be very happy with their investment uh, sometime in the next five to 10 years. But um, that's that's our market outlook on what Bitcoin's going to do over the next two years. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting research and, and some of, uh, I think, my colleagues' interest in, in Europe. Uh, one thing that at least attracted me, there's there's one of these posters on Twitter. You get a lot of information on Twitter. I think that's how I even first came across Tyrone on, on Twitter. And we got to have dinner together a few years ago in, in Florida from a, a finance Twitter event. Um, yeah. But one of these anonymous Twitter people, Plan B, um, Twitter handle 100 trillion USD has this thing called his stock to flow model. And he sort of had a model with updated prices and then he updated it with including some clusters of silver and gold. And sort of the, the, the analogy is that there's a certain amount of gold. Uh, stock, and then there's the flow of how much is newly mined, uh, sort of similar idea for silver, and the silver you actually sort of has more production cases, so more silver comes out. But, you know, he has this model, and it has like these prices that make you say, really? Like these hundreds of thousands of of dollars worth of, if, you know, for the Bitcoin today, under 10,000, but going up to 100,000. Um, you know, how much stock do you put in these stock to flow models, Tyrone? Any, any sense on this? Um... I'm going to be frank. I I don't, but I, I, I do see... Here's the thing. In order for folks to create some type of narrative or quantitative, um, you know, thought pieces around, okay, well, what is Bitcoin? How do we value it, right? And and I think that there's a lot that has gone on there. I think, shout out to Chris Perninsky, um that, you know, wrote the book Crypto Assets few years back and there's been a lot of folks that have actually tried to model and do some price predictions. I'm not really in the whole predicting price um, camp, but I do think if you look at Bitcoin and, and from the aspect that you're looking at, it's like the hardness of it, right? The scarcity. That's what I do think it demonstrates very well. But what I always go back to, the best way I've ever heard Bitcoin described is, is a long data call option on a store of value. The fact is right now it's very speculative. Let's just call it a venture investment anyone that is looking at it now right even paul tudor jones what he says it's the fastest horse stop there right that's exactly what it is you never know the makeup or the genetics of the fastest horse at the racetrack you just bet on it based on you know certain things that you can create a story around and you go from there um but you're not you're not really aware of the the ins and outs of how that horse was trained or what it is it's just the fastest horse it won and i think this is the same thing with bitcoin here is that it's, it's, it's still in the speculative stage to try and predict price. 
I think is foolhardy for financial advisors. And again, looking for financial advisors that are trying to create, um, again, some, some mind space around this and some narrative around it for themselves and clients. It's simply how do I have conversations around this in a way to try and demonstrate value to the client and ultimately what that value would bring to a portfolio. Not too many financial advisors are going to put any credence in stock to flow model, and there's no way they can put that in front of a client. So I yeah. think it's really, it's really smart to – now, again, there are some things to take away from it, but I think, again, the people that would look at that and, and see value in it are different than financial advisors and the folks that we would be speaking to. Um, but I think overall looking, looking at what it does present in the, in the sense of the, uh, the safe haven or store value narrative, yes, hardness, the hardness of the money, the scarcity of it, you can create a narrative that, okay, yes, this is something I should be invested in, um, you know, from, from a, you know, a, a, a safety standpoint or, or, you know, a, a non-correlated asset in the portfolio. Sure. I think, but I don't think you put too much value in that moving forward. That's a good point. I mean, it's it's hard to know all these models. They look great looking backwards, but you never know looking forward. Um, and w- when you when you think about sort of talking again to what it, how advisors would use this in portfolios, what do you think they're selling to create room for Bitcoin? Like, what is it? What is it replacing? As you talk about sort of this this call option, this venture capital type investment, but what are what where do you th- what do you think it sort of competes with in their in their portfolio? That's a really great question. So. And, and that's another thing. If you're looking at modeling this in a, in a portfolio, portfolio aggregation tools or whatever, where, where does it fit? Is it does it go alongside gold? I've had conversations where advisors said they would have they would have a little bit of gold and a little bit of Bitcoin. Some have said it would replace gold. Right? Um, is it you know does it go in that alternative sleeve along with managed futures or something like that? And, and that's the thing. It's like it's it's going to evolve and it'll start to show more of a, you know, more of a fit in a portfolio right now. It's still very early, but most of the conversations that I've had and how I look at it, I definitely think for financial advisors right away, it would just be, again, narratives, right? The, the digital gold narrative, it would go in a portfolio as a replacement for gold, or again, as some have said, alongside gold. Um, but, I think, again, when financial advisors are able to build out and get very constructive, especially CFAs and certified financial planners, literally build out and do intricate models with portfolios and and, and can actually integrate Bitcoin into it and really get fancy with that, I think we'll really start to see, okay, well, maybe we can take out, you know, we don't, maybe you don't allocate as much to equities, right? It's it's not a 55%, um, you know, we're not taking that 5% out of equities and putting into Bitcoin, maybe it's something else. So I'm, I'm interested to see how it revolves, evolves, but I think right now it's just simply going to be, you know, uh, the hedge as opposed to, you know, gold right now or alongside uh, uh, an allocation to gold in a portfolio. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're talking with Chris, Chris King, Tyrone Ross of Eagle Brook Advisors. We got Florian Genez of Wisdom Europe, Europe Limited. Um, this is a, a sort of interesting point on the case for gold even today. I mean, given, um, you know, we, I have Professor Siegel I've worked with for 19 years now. He actually just released a piece today on our website um, calling for inflation. You know, he's never been um, 
in the 19 years I've known him, he's been stocks for long run um, and sort of anti-gold. You know, he's increasingly saying gold actually has sort of an interesting um, sort of risk return here, given he actually does believe inflation is coming back and historically rates are so low. Florian, on the case for gold today with negative rates, what do you what do you see in Europe? Like when you think about Europe historically, um, gold, you know, had some competition because bonds paid some interest. But in Europe, that's not what you're what you're living over there. Um, yeah, I mean, in Europe, we've seen a lot of uh, inflows last year in our in, in our uh, gold product range, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that uh, really the fact that uh, you know there is not really any good opportunity at the moment when you look at the market, at least that's the perception generally in Europe. Uh, gold seems to be a, a good alternative for for, for placing the for placing money. Uh, so from, from that from that angle, I, I guess it resonates very much with, uh, with Bitcoin because it's uh, it's an asset class that for a lot of people presents great opportunities for returns, and so so that that's also um, making a case for for having Bitcoin Bitcoin alongside an allocation with uh, with gold. Chris, what do you think about the case for allocation beyond, you know, sort of where it's going from stocks, bonds? Um, you know, I, I like to think about their stocks, bonds and everything else to this. Like what is alternatives and Tyrone's point? Um, you know, I, I hear a lot on on Bitcoin being digital gold. And I think that's, you know, one simple way of describing what it could be. What 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 do you think about that description as digital gold? And what do you think about it as or what what's the case beyond that? Like what else as a store of value um, would you say, you know, the long term case for Bitcoin is? Yeah, of course. So I would say that really is the case. And that's my thinking that Bitcoin is digital gold. Um, the advisors that we're talking to that run discretionary portfolios, uh, they're typically taking from equities and moving it into a bucket within their alternative investment bucket that they're calling a hard money asset allocation, which is essentially just Bitcoin and gold. And they're uh, rebalancing between those two as, as obviously the market uh, continues. And they decide, okay, do we want to be more in Bitcoin for X, Y, and Z reason? There's an asymmetric upside that gold doesn't have, but also you need to size it correctly when you're putting it in. That's my thought, is that advisors are going to take an allocation. They want an allocation to hard money assets like gold or Bitcoin, which is digital gold with a higher upside. Then that's where it should fit in the portfolio. And they're either taking from cash or they're taking from uh, stocks. You know, we were just quickly talking about how to think about uh, when I first asked, like, how to think about Bitcoin compared to these other places. Florian, did you want to jump in on just any views on on how else other some of these big hedge funds have been thinking about Bitcoin and the, and the role in portfolios? Uh, yeah, I, I guess that's uh, that, that, that's the question that I wanted to ask because um, you know the Medallion Fund from from Citadel as well as Paul Tudor Jones uh, have come out recently saying that they were holding Bitcoin and actively investing into Bitcoin, and so you know a lot of people see that as actually effectively removing carrier risk from the decision when it comes to invest. Uh, you know, clients' money into Bitcoin. So uh, I guess that was a, a question for for our guest today. Uh, how, what, what, what's your opinion on that? Do you believe it's actually the case? And uh, if you do believe that it helps, how much of that do you think we would need to actually see a lot of uh, traditional money, money manager uh, start considering Bitcoin for their clients? So I think if I understand that question correctly, you're asking, you know, how much institutional capital or will institutional capital move into the Bitcoin and crypto space? I would say the the last 
to market cycles were primarily driven by retail, I would say there was not the infrastructure, the compliance, or regulated trading platforms, or even custodians that could allow institutions to move into the Bitcoin market. Now we're seeing you know, some macro investors take positions and, and some institutions allocating to Bitcoin and crypto. In this next potential market cycle, we could see institutions getting off zero and, and uh, making an investment into Bitcoin. Yeah, I sort of wonder what percent of sort of your your standard when you, when you're when you're out there talking to advisors, how many of them personally own it, and then how many of their clients own it, either away from them or you know, obviously you're, you guys are coming out with the service because there's no service for them. I did sort of a little informal poll of of our team, and I I was surprised actually that so few actually had any exposure. And I I only recently um, became a, became a, a a holder earlier this year. Um, but, um, you know, it's sort of interesting. How, what, 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 where do you guys see Tyrone and Chris, the, the advisor levels and, and, uh, they're on their own personal side and then how, how do ramp them up for their clients? Well, having a whole bunch of friends that are financial advisors and, and being in the space, there are few, there are a lot that own it, uh, personally than they would publicly let on. Um, I get a lot of DMs and text messages asking questions, um, I haven't had, there really hasn't been a lot of conversations around um, clients that actually own it because, again, the, the issues for financial advisors to get into this space have not been addressed. Nothing in crypto has been built for financial advisors. This is a fact. So when you look at now, again, the infrastructure since 2017 is very robust. We'll be able to onboard more people. The institutions has their derivatives and futures markets and everything else. And then you have the retail, you have Abro, you have Cash App, you, get, you got it all, Robinhood, it's all there. In the middle are us. We are the gateway to those, you know, billions of dollars of retail assets that the market wants and needs, and probably a little bit of a conduit to the institutions, by the way, because if we weren't, we wouldn't be on here with you. But I think what you, what you start to realize is financial advisors have the conversation. They are having the conversations. They are uncomfortable with it, but their issues aren't being addressed around regulatory issues around, again, how does it work within my workflow? You know, the, the larger players, your Fidelities, your Schwab's, your TD Ameritrade's, right? They're, they're dancing around it, but there really has, there, there hasn't been any way. And again, I think a Bitcoin ETF is ridiculous, but that's what advisors want because it'll be very simple for them to allocate on behalf of clients. They won't have to worry about custody. They won't have to worry about the trust issues. So all of these have yet to be addressed. What's cool about what we're doing, and, and, and it's not even simply innovative, it's just addressing the issue, is going to, find, going to a financial advisor saying, look, here's the way you should think about allocating to a client. Here's how we're going to do it safely, cheaply, efficiently, right? The messenger matters in crypto, right? As a registered investment advisor, a financial advisor that has built a practice in crypto to come to them and walk them through that process. Here are the tools that you should be looking at. Here are some research materials. Like these are the things that need, you know, that need to be addressed. So until then, advisors aren't going to be comfortable having a conversation with clients. But I think personally, they are experiencing it, um, you know, whether it's through cash up or whatever else. And I do, I do think that's a positive development that I've seen over the last three years so that they will be a little bit more prepared to have to be more conversant around the conversation because as i told you and i've told other people when we get even close to the highs again there are so many financial advisors that are cooked they're going to get fired because their clients are going to ask about it and they're not going to be prepared 
So it's good to see that they are actually tinkering with it by themselves to get familiar um, and, you know, at least reaching out for resources to make sure they're, you know, they're readily available when clients do come in the door and saying, listen, I want I want to put, you know, a half a million dollars or, you know, a million dollars of my portfolio into this asset. You know, now, obviously, um, I, I have a biased worldview on different things and uh, and everybody's got their own biases. Um, you know, I, when I think about it, you, you sort of comment on the ETF being ridiculous. I think the, you know, it's, it's a wrapper and it's a way to hold assets. And, you know, arguably there, there could be some protections in an ETF wrapper that, you know, maybe you know, obviously they're going to have similar custodians or they could have different custodians. But, you know, I think in, in some ways the wrapper, whether it's a separate account, an ETF, uh, a, a Coinbase wallet, you know, there's just other ways of delivering it in different places to trade it. Um, you know, yeah, and, no, and some I, yeah I agree there. And, and I, and I want to make that very clear. I, what I, when I say ridiculous in terms of the conversation that is pushed in a narrative on Twitter and, and the like, there, there is some sense because again, it maybe it would be more accessible in retirement accounts and things like that. I just think the people that are pushing it and talking about it are simply because they want the price to pump and they're right. not thinking about, the actual what it may, what it'll be for retail and what it'll be again more constructive for the infrastructure of the space, price discovery, all these other things, which obviously you know very well that makes a ton of sense. But I think to just run out and want to cram it down financial advisors' throat without actually getting them to under you know to, to understand you know the underlying is the issue, right? They don't understand the underlying, and then they're going to go to a client and try and explain to a client something that you know we should put this in your portfolio we don't even understand that so i think again if we as we had this conversation as well if you get if if there's more robust education and advisors start to understand it then yes the 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 etf conversation is a little bit more easily integrated and it makes a lot more common sense but simply you know just to you know to moon the prices they say on Twitter, I, I just I just think that's a very foolhardy way of looking at. It. No, that's a very good point. And, and so, this, guys, this has been an incredible conversation, and I, I, I appreciate you guys coming on the show to announce your offerings. Um, we're sort of running out of time on our segments. Maybe a little bit how they can find out more about what you guys are doing, and and obviously where to find some more information about you all. Yeah, of course. So you can request early access on our website. It's EagleBrookAdvisors.com. Um, type in that you're uh, you know, independent RAA or, or you're an advisor and we'll get in contact with you. And, and Tyrone, about all the different offerings, things you're doing uh, beyond Eaglebrook. Yeah, the, the best way to find me is on Twitter at TR401, uh, my website, tr, uh, tyroneross.io, um, especially for the financial folks, advisors. Listen, there's a lot of podcasts and videos that I've done on there around crypto, how I've built a practice around and integrated into my practice and some of the basics of, you know, the things you should be looking at. So a lot of that we, will be on my website there. We got to go. Chris Tyrone, Florian, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks for producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer today, Christopher Tukes. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.